Father God, we, uh, we step back into this moment um, after your son's arrest and uh, an eternal and all-powerful and all-loving and righteous plan is taking effect and your son is surrounded by people that misunderstand and, and, um, and are responding to him the way that they do out of that misunderstanding, Father. And that's us. That's us without you and that's still us with you. Um, thank you that you walk with us. Thank you, Lord, that you, that you place your Holy Spirit within us when we know you as our Savior and that we have you to teach us Thank you that you allow us to, to be gathered as your people, even here right now, and learn from you together. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us right now. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, listening to a radio program recently, that, that, uh, and it was kind of describing some of the weird news of the week and things. And... Um, Two of the of the situations really caught my attention. One was of a a lead singer of a British punk band called Black Tongue, and uh, he was on the the band tour bus and apparently was a little bit inebriated uh, because, as the police report said, he uh, was apparently mistook mistake he was mistaking what he thought was the bathroom door for an exit door of the bus. And ended up tumbling out on the road as the bus was driving down the highway. Thank, I wouldn't be sharing with you if he was injured that badly. It was just minor injuries and stuff. But, but um, you know, apparently uh, that's what the effects of uh, this guy's choices was going to have with him, that mistake that he made. Another was a Florida man that was arrested um, being suspected of, um, well, he was arrested with drugs. And so he was being booked as having drugs with him. And there was this sus- the suspicion that he was maybe involved with dealing drugs. And uh, the suspicion was uh, resolved when he was asked as a part of the booking process what his occupation was, and he responded as a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, when we're inhibited by, say, alcohol or fear or pride or shame, etc., we tend to make poor decisions. Picking up on John's account on the night when he's arrested, we're going to see men who are motivated and affected by things other than desiring to know the truth. They're affected by fear. They're affected by shame. They're affected by um, the anxiety. They're affected by pride. And sadly, it amounts, it amounts to Jesus being despised and rejected. And so let's just read through. We're picking up in John 12 here, after Je- or, or when Jesus is arrested. It says, the band of soldiers, and you'll remember this is the Roman cohort and their captain, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now we're, we're going to be describing a little bit later who this guy Annas is. Um, John is the only gospel writer that mentions Jesus going to Annas. And says nothing about Jesus' time before Caiaphas. Whereas everybody else talks about Jesus' time before Caiaphas. So moving along, we read, uh, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so that the other disciple... Uh, So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. This other disciple, we don't know for sure who he was. Most assume it was John, 
Some have wondered if it's Joseph of Arimathea or possibly Nicodemus. But we know that he followed Jesus from that place. I, I would err on the side of saying it's John, but for some reason, as John doesn't do in his gospel, he never names himself for some reason. But we see Peter standing at the door. He's about to enter into this courtyard and he's confronted. It says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now in John's writing style, he writes in a, if we, as we've seen throughout John, he writes in a dynamic narrative. You know, he said, then Jesus said, then they replied, you know, back and forth. And he actually paints this picture of this scene in a dynamic narrative too. We're going to see him bouncing between Peter and what's going on with Jesus. And so here it bounces after Jesus, Peter is confronted by this servant girl who wouldn't have been this, you know, young lass. It's not like he's being intimidated by a little girl. She has responsibility for who gets in and out. She would have been an older servant. But then John bounces to what's going on with Jesus. It says the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. I want you to see this morning, as we get through this, very simply, Jesus is Lord even over those who despise and reject him. He's Lord even over those who despise and reject him. And as we close today, we're we're really going to look at Jesus dealing with Peter. Um, and and uh, it's, it's, it's a ministry to me to do so. But first, we're, we're looking at, in verses 12 through 18, the, the sovereign, how Jesus is sovereign in his position. Sovereign in his position, even as he's the one being questioned, even as everyone around him are trying to position themselves to advantage or to protection, we find Jesus sovereign in his position as Lord over this moment. John makes it a point here to describe that they led him to Caiaphas, father-in-law, I'm sorry, to Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then he references back to this idea that it was Caiaphas who had Um, who had uh, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And John is referencing a statement from a meeting of the Sanhedrin. You might remember back from John 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, after he makes his most prominent and clear uh, miracle about what he is able to do and it's being talked about among all the people. The Sanhedrin are gathered together and they're like, what are we going to do here? You might remember uh, John eleven forty nine through 51 where it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better For you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And that's kind of like, oh yeah, okay, I can see how he's thinking that. 
But John added this uh, author's note in verse 51 where he says, he did not say this on his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So John is kind of um, referencing back. Remember Caiaphas, that guy that said that God said through him, Jesus is going to be dying? We can't help but notice him pointing out that God is in control even in this moment in Jesus' story as well as in all of his followers' story. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy about his mission. This prophecy was made by Caiaphas who hated him and didn't even know he was playing right into God's hands when he said it. And John is pointing back to that. And this is in total that, that God being in, at work and Jesus being in just exactly the position that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit had planned with this. This is in total contrast to the positioning of the earthly leaders that we see here. You know, it, this person, Annas, that they bring him to. Let me just explain here, as I said. If Caiaphas is the high priest, then who is this man, Annas, right? Well, we, we, we see here that he's the father-in-law of the high priest. So does that mean, like, if you're the father-in-law of the high priest, that puts you in a special position or something? He was actually the high priest 18 years prior to this. And according to Jewish law, the high priest was supposed to be in his position forever. But when the Romans, as a part of their controlling Palestine and ruling over Palestine, uh, Annas, I get, guess, got particularly became a problem for them or something. And so the Romans uh, removed him dethroned him, if you will, from the position of high priest. Well, that put the Jews in a kind of awkward position in that the high priest is supposed to reign throughout his lifetime. Annas exercised power still through his son-in-law. And in fact, he had five sons that reigned. It was supposed to be a ministry, but they reigned as high priest. And it kind of begs the question of, did they, they must not have all died it must just been that he was, got that position of high priest emeritus and he was going to keep it. But uh, one writer says about him, um, uh, he says that Annas seems to have been the elder statement, statesman and the power behind the throne, particularly of Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Annas's power uh, stretched outside the rule of Caiaphas. Again, as I said, he had five sons as well. This was probably um, the most powerful person in Israel at this person. He had found a way to wield his power without having to be the figurehead. In other words, without having to be the head that would get lopped off at times by the Romans, removing them. And he's, oh, I'll just put my other son in that place. For John's readers, if you'll remember John's gospel, um, when he writes of Annas, not of Caiaphas, uh, he, he assumes John was written after the other three gospels were written. And it's also after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, when the Romans finally came in and, and squelched the Jewish religious system or the, the sacrificial system and, and really came down hard. On Jerusalem, John is writing after all of this. And he assumes that the readers are aware of Jesus before Caiaphas. And so he's choosing to pick out something kind of unique to this story and something that would, would also minister to his readers at that time. And he's writing to a unique audience of a mix of both Christians in the, uh, the lands outside of Palestine as well as converted Jews, Jews who had become Christians. And for these Christian Jews, they would have experienced persecution from these Jewish rulers and, and um, even 
from remembering their time within Palestine and as well after Jerusalem was destroyed, as we've mentioned before, the persecution against the Christians and especially the Christian Jews just came down really hard on the Christians outside of um, the Jewish culture. And they, they cast them from the synagogues. That meant that they were no longer considered a Jewish sect. And so that meant the Romans came down hard on them because uh, they, the, the Romans had kind of gotten a, uh, a or the Jews had kind of gotten a pass on emperor worship. But once the Christians weren't considered a Jewish sect, but outside of that, the Romans began to come down really hard on them. They were used to Jewish rulers making decisions for them or persecuting them. And, and men like Annas would have represented everything that was wrong with the Jewish religious system. These, he represented the political maneuvering and the prideful positioning of the Sadducees. Here John draws out the most powerful man in Israel who thinks that he's in control of the all-powerful God-man. And we also see the sad contrast between Jesus and Peter here with the way that Peter positions himself. We read here about the servant girl at the door that said to Peter, you are not also, you are you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? That question there is expected to be answered with no. And it has to do with the terms that are used for the, the negative in there. Of course, he says, I am not. We read about how the servants and officers um, who were gathered there, didn't, they, you know, maybe this, the, they were involved, but, but they didn't have to be up there with what Jesus was doing in the courtyard. They'd made this charcoal fire because it was the middle of the night and because it was cold, John writes us that they were standing and warming themselves and he says Peter also was with them, standing and warming in himself. Peter here is believing, he believes in Jesus as the Lord and the Messiah, but he can't help um, what he sees going on right now at this moment and questioning where does this fit in this plan that I've been believing in, that I've dedicated myself to for these last three years and he's positioning himself for staying safe. As I mentioned, the question here is coming from a woman who... uh, who would, well, I don't have that there anymore, but, but who was um, expecting him to say, no way. But the questions will get harder as Jesus' questioning gets harder too. It's John kind of goes back and forth. But, but what's significant here at this moment, I think, is where it talks about Peter being with them. And this is being pointed out by John of Peter's position around the fire. He's blending in and probably trying to do so. I mentioned before last week that John has this strange way of describing the situation in the garden with Judas. And he explains that, and Judas led and... and um, Judas, or I don't even know if he's, just, if he's mentioned prior to this, leading in, the one who had, was to betray him was coming with all these men and, and it describes them as asking, are you Jesus of Nazareth? No mention of Judas walking up and kissing Jesus on the cheek. No mention of Jesus saying, do you just, to betray me with a kiss? All John says was, and they were standing there and Judas was with them. And I mentioned that's the last mention of Judas in the Gospel of John. And with the same exact terminology, John describes Peter here. The servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire, standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them. He's positioned himself with Jesus' enemies, much like Judas did, John is drawing out. 
when I think of the behavior of the Jewish leaders and Peter, it makes me think of something that Tony Evans said uh, recently that I just caught. He talked about the African impala. It's, um, it's a deer-like animal. It's, it's in Africa, you know, um, with, with huge uh, horns, and, and they're known for being able to leap effortlessly nine feet in the air. In fact, um, if a lion is sneaking up on them, they've got to be really close to the ground and stuff because they don't have to just worry about what they look like from the front. They have to worry about what they look like from nine feet up in the air because these will actually leap up nine feet up in the air to see what's coming. Interesting thing about the African impala, it can be um, encaged with a six-foot fence. Even though it only even though it can leap nine feet up in the air. And here's the deal. As long as the fence is solid, it can be encaged in a six-foot fence. You know why? Because it won't leap where it can't see where it's going to land. If it can't see where it's going to land, it won't jump over an object. The religious leaders and Peter represented short-sightedness when it came to Jesus. For the religious leaders, they couldn't see how Jesus, his reign, could be a good thing for them. We might lose our place and our position, they said, talking to each other back in John 11. And so therefore, he's got to go. I'm not taking this leap, they're saying. I don't see where I'm going to land. For Peter, he couldn't see how Jesus' being the Messiah could include his being arrested and his suffering in this way. I I, um, heard recently uh, it said that um, people either expected a Messiah to come and suffer and be the suffering servant, or they expected him to come and reign Uh, And some even expected maybe there was going to be two of them. What they didn't expect was for the same man to come twice. To come as the suffering servant and the conquering king and purchase his body, the church, and then to come again and reign. Knowing Christ as our Messiah, as our Savior, we don't just receive God's saving grace that just makes us his child, we receive his grace to live in, to take, to take leaps into. So often our fears, our anxieties are based on, they're based on the fear that God will not give me the same grace there in that terrible situation that I'm imagining that he's giving me right now. In fact, when we think about something that makes us anxious, it's making us anxious because we're not looking at it with faith. We're not looking at it with the understanding that the same grace I have right now, it will be there. Let me ask you, just rhetorically, how are you right now? I mean, is God's grace enough right now? Whatever it is that you're anxious about, God's grace will be enough there too. We're not looking at these situations when we're anxious, when we're looking ahead in faith, knowing that God will be present. God will be there just as he is here. God's not shaking about the future. It's not just because he knows it or he's planned it. More importantly, it's because he will be there in it with us. We should never be afraid to leap where we can't see if we know that's where God wants us. Or if we know that that is a part of God's plan for us. And that requires relationship, knowing We shouldn't be afraid of sticking out like a sore thumb if we know that we're following Jesus. Jesus stuck out at this moment. 
Peter didn't want much to do with him. Well, we also see that Jesus was sovereign even while being rejected. You think, I think he's being rejected enough already. Well, I'm, unfortunately, it kind of gets worse. But, of course, we know that Jesus' rejection was foretold in many places, like in Isaiah 53, 3 through 5, where it says he was despised for telling about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This could describe Peter at this moment. I think it's interesting. We'll, we'll look at something that Peter says in his letter of 1 Peter, and he quotes this next statement. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But upon him the chastisement that brought us peace Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's what Peter wasn't expecting. It's only by the wounds of Christ that we're healed. And I I just want to take this moment. I just, I try to communicate the gospel anytime I get a chance in in a message. If we think that we're made acceptable by God, by anything but the sacrifice of Jesus on our part, we have it wrong. It's his righteousness, it's his suffering, it's his taking our sorrows, it's his taking our, um, our griefs, it's his taking our transgressions, it's his taking our iniquities and taking the punishment for them. And receiving the work that he has done to, to be credited to our account is the one and only thing that allows us to have a relationship with God. And anything that we think that could cause us to lose that has already been put on Christ. We saw this at the scene of his arrest in the garden. Jesus showed his confidence and we see it back here and here also as he challenges Annas. We see his challenging with confidence. We, we read the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I, what I said to them. They know what I said. Annas seems to want to get to the doctrine that Jesus has been teaching about. He's concerned about his disciples. I think actually Annas is digging for dirt here. Because we know from the other gospels that when Jesus stands before Caiaphas in a more formal trial, though not legal by, by Jewish law, in a more formal trial, that they have to bring false witnesses before him to try to dig something up that he might be guilty of. I think Annas is digging for dirt to be passed along to the more formal trial. Josephus, the Jewish historian, had pity for anybody who ended up under the scrutiny of these Sadducees. Josephus writes, the school of the Sadducees are indeed more heartless than any of the other Jews when they sit in judgment. He also says that those who were accused in this situation usually took an attitude of humility. Josephus writes that they would assume, quote-unquote, the manner of one who is fearful and seeks mercy when they would sit before the Sadducees. And there was a Jewish tradition that a rabbi should teach his disciples in public except for certain subjects. And Jesus argues that he taught very openly and publicly. It's ironic, catch this, that the Jewish leaders are basically accusing Jesus of volatile and heretical teaching done in secret. And yet they are the ones that arrested him in the middle of the night while they had the chance, lest the people would get in an uproar, and they're bringing him into this secret quasi-trial 
to go on to another illegal gathering of the Sanhedrin before him, and they're accusing him of teaching in secret. More of the irony that John has brought up again and again in his gospel. And as also has been typical with this chapter, Jesus is depicted as if he's the one holding the meeting. He challenges Annas to bring out witnesses from among the people standing around. He's saying, ask any one of these people. They were there. But the calling of witnesses would have called for a more formal trial. Jesus seems to be both pointing out the fact that there's plenty who heard him teach and the irregular, informal nature of his questioning, not to mention the fact that it's in the middle of the night. To consider it a trial would have classified it for, uh, as, as an illegal trial for sure. So to add insult to injury... We read that when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Notice how they refer to Annas as the high priest. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The law restricts um, anyone from, from insulting the high priest. What's ironic, again, is the guards' actions are highly illegal toward Jesus. It was illegal for someone to be beaten or mistreated if they'd not been convicted or formally accused of a crime. Again, Jesus is shown to be in control of even the one who's beating him. He challenges the guard for chapter and verse for why he struck him. Sadly, the beatings that Jesus receives at the hands of the Jews, they don't end here. When he moves on to the Sanhedrin, Luke twenty-two sixty-three through 64, tell us, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, and Luke includes blaspheming him. His behavior here is described by a first-hand observer, Peter. In 1 Peter 2, 22 through 23, when he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This statement is made in hindsight by the strong and repentant and spirit-filled Peter. But on this night, as we can all understand, Peter had one of those nights that he wishes he could take back. We see Peter denies Jesus with cowardice. We read in verses 25 through 27, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of those, uh, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster, a rooster crowed. Once again, Peter is challenged with the question that expects the answer of, of course not. The negative term in here is, the the Greek term is may. And that affects the the fact that the the answer is expected to be, no. Actually, his response to the question is, is very terse and direct, Peter's response. It's likened to what a child says when they're like, am not. Which, of course, is supposed to respond with to are so. But that, that's, it's just two words, am not. And the third question that Peter faces 
in one, is one that's very different from the others. And I, I think of three reasons here. One, as I said, it, it uses a different Greek term. It uses the negative particle, ook. And it's a question that expects Peter to stop and go, okay, yeah, that's me. So it expects a positive answer. Secondly, the question comes from someone that was in the garden when Peter was arrested. It's an accusation from an eyewitness. So an, and an eyewitness is right there. And John references the fact that this guy is a relative of Malchus, the one who Peter assaulted, as he says, or he cut his ear off. You notice nobody says, and Jesus healed him. But this would make the question, of course, a little bit more passionate, but it's also referencing the fact that, that Peter likely was doing an illegal act by carrying a sword during the Passover. And certainly worse than that is the, the assault was against someone that was very respected in this very setting, a servant of the high priest. <clears throat> and more than any other time, Peter is feeling right now like it's possible that he might get yanked and thrown by Jesus' side in the middle of this quasi-trial. See that it says Peter again denied it. He's all in with his denial at this point. In his, his, mi- in his mind, he maybe, <coughs> he maybe could have justified the previous denials by kind of thinking he's working with Jesus incognito here. But this is about self-preservation here. In fact, Mark 14, 71 tells us that Peter invoked a curse on himself and to, to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This means that Peter basically put himself under oath and called for a curse, put himself under a curse. In other words, he's saying, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye if I'm lying. And John just leaves it here. At once, the rooster crowed. So much like when he's saying, remember Caiaphas? He's the one that said this was going to take place. Again, we can discern John's message to his readers who were being questioned and challenged and cast out. His message is that even as he was being questioned and beaten and ridiculed, God was in control of this very moment, the darkest hour. It was all in his timing. Maybe if we could read the story of our life, and I think in some ways in heaven we will. We're going to read that. You know, maybe, maybe it'll be, uh, remember this was going on in your life? Well, this is going to happen. And maybe whatever is our darkest hour we'll read, and the rooster crowed. Uh, Jesus is responding to an informal, infor- uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is informing Peter back in John 13, 38, after Peter is among all the other disciples arguing that he's the best among all of them. Back in John 13, Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And John is referencing back to this idea. Amazingly, this is where John leaves it, as I said. And there's so much more going on with Peter. And we'll dip into that if you'll give me the time this morning. But Jesus being on so- sovereign and on mission, even while he's being rejected and denied, can be illustrated by a story that I learned about that was in a, a National Geographic magazine some years ago. So there was a fire that happened sometimes at the Yellowstone National Park 
And after the fire had burned out and kind of done its damage and stuff, some, some uh, rangers, some forest rangers, went out to assess the fire's damage. And they were kind of walking along the perimeter of what had been damaged and what had been scarred by the fire. And the, the damage also extended out where the ash and the heat had also affected the vegetation and the animals beyond that. And they just happened upon, the article says, they happened upon this dead bird, which is strange enough because it was outside of where the fire would have affected. The bird would have been able to fly away, but it was just sitting on the ground, covered in ash, stone-like and dead. And one of the rangers had his walking stick, and he just happened to kind of poke this bird. I wonder if he was kind of wondering, if this, is this thing alive? It's just kind of like statue-like, sitting here. And he poked it with his walking stick, and the, bird just, the dead bird just happened to roll over. And underneath it were three tiny chicks that scurried out from underneath its dead body. For some, uh, you know, the bird could have flown to safety. But instead, when the, likely when the gases started rising from the fire, rather than leaving its chicks and flying to safety, it brought its chicks to the ground. And when hope was kind of lost for, for itself, it covered them, allowing itself to be covered with ash and killed. Because she had been prepared to die, those under her wings would live. Uh, this is the same thing that's described in Psalm 91.4. And I like how the New Living puts it. It says, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, I cry at movies at home. Um, he will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Jesus here was exercising his work as God for Peter and for us. You know, he he could have flown away, so to speak. He already tells Peter in the garden, don't you know, I could call down legions of angels but he won't. He's got a job to do. He's taking the heat for the very one who was denying him. He was taking the heat even for the ones that were beating him. So where is Jesus now? He's not in a courtyard. He's not still hanging on a cross. Right at this moment, he's our advocate. He's our defender. He is appealing for us before the throne of God. You know, I was just having a conversation just just prior to this about um, some traditions that believe that we have to be constantly gaining righteousness, constantly benefiting from Jesus' blood, constantly as a part of our works before, uh, and, and it's, well, as our works before God in quasi-Christian situations that we have to be constantly getting God's grace or else at that moment our justification might stop. And I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. Jesus stands as my defender. He says, Lord, do you see my righteousness on JD? That's all I need. He's still the manifestation for you of God covering you with his righteousness. Well, I I kind of walk away from John's account of Peter and, and I feel just a little bit empty because I'm Peter. You know? And you're Peter, right? 
Both Judas and Peter were men who were Jesus' disciples. And John describes as being with, both of them are being described as with those who stood against Jesus on this very night. We know that Judas ended his life in disgrace and in regret. And at the end of John's gospel, we see Peter restored, and we'll look at that when we get there. We'll see Peter restored as Jesus' fisher of men. But what happens to Peter on this night of Jesus' arrest? Well, Luke 22 gives us much of the rest of Peter's story on this night, both, both before and after his denials. But we'll look first after his dis- denials. Luke twenty-two sixty-one 61 through 62 tells us, and the Lord, at this very moment, at the moment of of his denying him the third time. It says, the Lord looked at Peter. So their eyes met. And it says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And verse 62 tells us, and he went out and wept bitterly. I think, like, you know, it's not just as their eyes met, it's not just that Peter was convicted. I believe that at that moment, like what had happened time and time again in his relationship with Jesus over these three years, his expectations were blown away. He doesn't just realize how frail his commitments are. He realizes who Jesus is and what he is doing was truly bigger than anything that he had given him credit for. We also see that Peter became hugely sorrowful. And I believe that this is the outward expression of repentance. And I'll explain to you from earlier in Luke 22 why I say that. But I believe at this moment, Peter is repenting. He's turning. I believe that he was experiencing repentance of what Luke shares here. Earlier that night when Peter was confident of his abilities to be greatest among the disciples, uh, Jesus says to him in verses 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus is describing almost like a, a this heavenly setting like what is described in the book of Job. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But notice this. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is not describing the on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? This is describing this moment in John. And because, notice in verse 34, Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Deny three times that you know me. I believe that Jesus is talking about this moment. Peter's weeping bitterly is the blessing of turning in repentance. It was for the purpose of, of the once proud Peter to be brought to a place where he could, be, could strengthen the other followers of the Lord at this darkest moment as we've seen Jesus communicate his concern. And earlier in this night, at that night, Peter more than ever realized how much he needed Jesus as his Passover lamb. I believe that, <coughs> excuse me, in a lot of ways he realized what I love, and I've quoted it to you before from Andrew Peterson's song, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? He says, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. I want you to come away from this morning not just seeing Peter as the denier, not just seeing him as the the proud person brought low 
Peter is the one that God did a work in, that prepared him to walk in his grace and to be better used in him. What work does God want to do in you? What work is he doing? Stop fighting, recognizing the fact that you might have had a small vision of God. Stop fighting, recognizing the fact that you probably had it wrong. To admit defeat, to admit that we're not enough, to admit that he is bigger than we ever imagined him to be, that's what our relationship with him is made of. Peter didn't take a step back on this night. He took a step forward. And it's our silly pride that thinks we have to work our way into a special relationship with him. We have to be broken into it. What is it that you hide about yourself when you gaze at him? I'll tell you, shame is not from God. Uh, I believe that God has us in a place of being more authentic with each other. As we've talked about, shame is not from God. And shame is dispelled not by Um, keeping things covered until we can get them better. Shame is dispelled by opening ourselves up before the Lord and saying, this is what you bought. And realizing he knew it. Let's close in prayer.